Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's lots to talk about, and uh, the, the Torah at this point is, is taking a, a, a big turning point right now with the, uh, with the introduction of Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, and now this is ushering in the, the era of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and we've got now in succession we're going to have Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Leah, Rachel, um, the, and then the twelve tribes, and the, the, the whole story of the Jewish people is beginning now. And it's, it's interesting because just um, on a macro level, just uh, thematically, there's a very large shift right now from a discussion of general humanity to specifically the Jewish people right now. So maybe that's something that we're going to get to a little bit later. But just there's a, there's a real shift here. And... You know, just uh, in terms of the actual Parshas themselves, we have Breshis, which is the creation of the world, Noach, where the world is destroyed, and now Lech Lecha, which begins with God's command to Abraham to move. And it seemed to me like, on a very personal level, you know, if, 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 if you experience a, a Noach episode in your life, meaning to say, if there's a destruction in your life, if something, if there's a flood, so to speak, that comes that wipes away something that you've worked on, the next parsha is Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha means keep moving. That's God's advice to you. Creation comes, then there's going to be setbacks. That's Noah. And then what's the conclusion? Lech Lecha. Keep moving. Just go forward. Don't stop. Don't stop. And I heard in the name of the Sfasemis, that this command to Abraham, Lech Lecha, which means go forward, but it's deeper than that, we'll get into it in a moment, this command to go forward was actually given to every Jew for all time. So in other words, the command is to all of us forever to keep moving. Don't stop. Don't stop. Higher and higher. So Lech Lecha, Lech Lecha itself is a very interesting word. It's the Gematria 100. And this is, this is interesting on a number of levels. Because, because Abraham Avinu was 75 years old when this issue was given, when this command was given. And he lived, Lech Lecha, he lived to 175. So after this command, Lech Lecha, was given, he was given another 100 years. He lived another 100 years, the Gematria of Lech Lecha, after this was said. And another thing that's very striking and I think very encouraging, is the fact that this, Hashem promises Abraham that he'll receive five different blessings if he, if he listens to this command and moves forward. And the Medrash connects these five different blessings with the five different times in the beginning of the Torah that Hashem says that God saw the light and that it was good, that the light was good. So you see, Abraham Avinu is being associated with, with light. And so, historically speaking, that's very significant, because what Abraham was doing was restoring the knowledge of one God in the world. Remember, he was not the creator of monotheism. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say that. And you might say, well, no, you're being picky to say that, no, he restored it as opposed to offered it, Initially, but it's a, it's a, it's a radical difference. It's, it's a huge difference. Everyone knew about the oneness of God. There is one God. That's not an idea that was created by human beings. That was something that 
that was a description of reality itself. But it became obscured and mired in this consciousness of idol worship. What happened, as the Rambam explains, is that basically people started to worship the intermediaries. Meaning to say, and I believe the Rambam gives this example, if you have a king who's surrounded by ministers, it's appropriate to give honor to the ministers around the king. And sometimes in certain uh, courtly venues, you'll have the ministers will precede the king, like a, a, this entourage, you know, and, and that, that's also appropriate in, in a way. And so, for instance, the, 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 the constellations, the stars and the moon and things like this, the sun, sort of precede God, so to speak, in terms of looking upwards. And, and these are also conduits through which God sends heavenly blessing. Sends the sunshine so things can grow and everything like that. Well, people thought that it would be appropriate to honor the king's ministers. Because, you, because the glory of the king is on his ministers as well. So it would be appropriate to honor the sun, to honor the moon, to honor the rain, to honor all these different intermediaries. Because these are all vehicles, conduits through which God blesses the world. So people set up images of these things, and then they started to have a direct relationship with the intermediary, and then ultimately forgot about God. So this is, you know, in a nutshell, the birth of the consciousness of idol worship. In other words, one cut themselves off from the, the source of all things. So Abraham Avinu is coming, and he's restoring the light, the clarity. This is why he's being compared to these five blessings are being compared to the goodness of the light at the, beginning, at the beginning of creation. Light means clarity. So Abraham is the light. So that's why he's being compared to the initial light of creation. Because he's restoring the clarity of the understanding of one God in the world. So, so the Kutzker Rebbe says something very interesting. I heard it in his name. Which is that the whole world heard the command, Lech Lecha, to go to Israel. The whole world heard it, but only Abraham went. So that's, a, that's, that's kind of heartbreaking, if you think about it. It's inspiring and it's heartbreaking at the same time. And you can ask a question, because the Midrashim tell us a lot about the life of Abraham before the moment of Lech Lecha. And you know, Midrashim fall into a lot of different categories. All Midrashim are true. But whether they're literally true or not is not always the case. Some will say to you that they're always literally true. But there's a, another opinion, which is that sometimes the allegorical nature of them is so wild that the, that the details of the medrash itself is not the point. The point is that the teaching, the truth that the sages are trying to communicate through this parable. And that's what's true. So if, if, if you hear about something being, you know, you know like a, a huge expanse, which seems much larger than it could be credibly, or someone being extremely tall, which sounds like very improbable, the point is usually what is being communicated through this imagery, the truth that's being communicated. So in that way, the Medrash is true, but on what level is the truth being communicated? Okay? So... So, I forgot why I'm bringing this up. <laughs> Does anyone remember? Abraham 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. So, so we have a lot of Midrashim about Abraham before Lech Lecha, before the command to take his whole encampment and go with Sarah to, to Israel. But these Midrashim are considered on the level of truth. In other words, the stories themselves are called absolutely true. They're not, they're not considered to be um, uh, metaphors or parables or anything like that. They're actually considered to be actual, accurate historical accounts. Like, for instance, Abraham is thrown into this furnace and he's not burned. We accept that as an actual truth, that that actually happened, that that miracle happened. And so, so, and there are other examples, too. He, he hid out, he was like this, uh, he was a hunted man for many, many years. He lived in a cave for something like 13 years. I mean, there, there are extraordinary things about Abraham le- leading up to the, um, this command to, to go forward, Lechacha. So the question that the rabbis ask is, why is it, and why was he hunted, by the way? He was hunted because he believed in one God which was a theology which was shaking up the entire world at that point. In fact, it goes even further than that. It says that when, when we built the Tower of Babel, that you could put the entire world on one side of the equation and Abraham alone on the other side of the equation. This is a phenomenal thing, that, that, that God would actually weight things in this way. Like, normally speaking... We we're very tempted to say, well, wait a second. If you're the only one in the entire world who believes this, then that makes you clinically insane. I'm sorry. I apologize. But, you know, the math is not really working for you. And yet we see that this idea of the oneness of God, which was considered insanity, turns out to be the case. And so, so we see, like, I mean, what's instructive to me about this and sort of inspiring to me about this is that you see that when it comes to truth, numbers aren't really that relevant. You know, uh, let me put it in a different way. Someone can say that, you know what, I know for a fact that Chinese food tastes terrible, right? Because I've been to 13 Chinese food restaurants and I haven't liked any of them. But you know something? It's possible, A, you just personally don't like Chinese food and don't know what Chinese food, good Chinese food tastes like. That's a possibility, but let's put that aside. You can't say there's no such thing as a good Chinese food restaurant, because I have personally eaten in one, in many. So someone can encounter lack of truth or falsehood on a mass scale and then conclude that because falsehood exists on such a mass scale, that truth can't exist. And yet there's no contradiction. Falsehood can exist on a massive scale. And that doesn't mean that truth can't exist. Just, in, just because one has never encountered it is not proof that it doesn't exist. So here, God is teaching us something very interesting, and it gives you another insight into the, the amazing, amazing nature of who Abraham was. Right? That the entire world is lined up on one side and he's on the other side. By the way, the word, we say Avram Ha'ivri. Ivri is translated as Hebrew. This is the word where the English word Hebrew comes from. Really, it means Ivri. Ivri means someone from the other side. Right? Like across the river. So, so you, have, you have this concept 
of, you know something? Everyone's on one side. Abraham, this Ivri, which becomes this Hebrew, he's the guy on the other side. And, you know, the power of an idea. The power of an idea. For good and for bad. For good and for bad. You know, we were, we were talking about it, that sometimes you think that immorality, immorality can only come from perversion. But it's, it's not true. Immorality can also come from false ideas. Because if false ideas take hold, one can see life in a completely different way and then just live in a way that's essentially immoral, based on the idea. And the one who promotes that idea might not have anything immoral in mind to begin with. They might be a very upright, very elegant, very sophisticated intellectual person. And yet, if the idea itself undermines morality, so it's, 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 it's interesting. Just the idea that immorality can enter society not necessarily through immoral people, just through lack of proper understanding. You know, I, I just want to segue. I, I read a, a, uh, an article in the New York Times yesterday. Which, you know, it, it was basically, it's a, a kind of like a dating class for women in their 20s. And it was being held in New York City. And it was a, a sort of new dating gurus on the scene trying to help single women, like, find, uh, try to navigate uh, the, the current dating culture. And I'm talking about in, in secular society right now. And I thought that it was a very... Yeah, I read a lot, and I read a lot of newspaper articles and, and stuff like this, but I thought that this was a very nice, concise description of what I think women especially are going through. You know, and um, anyway, I'm just sort of reporting right now. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not editorializing, um, unless I am editorializing, in which case right now I'm editorializing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have perspective right now. But I'm trying just to report. Um, so... So basically, there's something known as, and I might sound like an old fuddy-duddy to say this phrase, which might be, you know, common knowledge for years and years and years and years. But anyway, we, we, we live amidst what's known as the hookup culture. So what, what is the hookup culture exactly? And again, I saw this uh, described, and I'm talking about in, secu- in the secular world right now. You see, what happens is um, casual sex has become so automatic and accepted by men and women, both, both parties. It's become so um, beside the point, so like, like a handshake. It, it's more than a handshake, but, but not, not dramatic, that men and women will hang out each, with each other as friends. And they, they, they said in this article, often in groups, you'll have men and women hanging out as friends. But because the, um, the barrier to entry has been lowered, the bar has been lowered so far down in terms of um, what it takes to be intimate with, with someone else, that these sort of casual sort of like gatherings and friendships leads to a quote-unquote hookup, leads to physical intimacy, and then there's no expectations. Because one is not, one, you know, the, the, the media and, and society has told us that, that one of the conditions of casual sex and intimacy is that you're not allowed to have any expectations of the other person. Because that's violating the rules of casual sex. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you expect for me to call you the next day? <laughs> or to treat you any more nicely? Right? 
Right? And, 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 and so what happens is, women, especially, apparently, more so than men, have been utterly traumatized by this societal development because they're then left in this total state of giant questioning. What is my relationship with this guy? Does he like me? Does he not like me? Is there, is there more to our relationship? Is there not more to our relationship? And so this has been sort of going on on some level, you know, since, say, the 60s or something like that, probably for all time, but since casual sex became more socially acceptable. But now that the bar has been lowered so low, you know, that now it's like a, 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 this, this epidemic, uh, so to speak, in terms of confused women walking around. Am I, am I allowed to expect anything from this guy whatsoever? And so what's interesting to me about this is that I think, and now maybe, now maybe I am offering an opinion, maybe the reporting is ending at this point right now. It seems to me that, you see, sex, it seems to me, is very confusing and very, very tricky because it, it, it's sort of like it, there is a, a, a soul element to it and a soul connection to it, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. And so you can tell yourself and you can read a thousand articles and a thousand magazines just have a good time and everything like that, and the, and the implications are only skin deep. And yet, you see, the implications are not only skin deep. That you can tell yourself that a thousand times. And yet, nonetheless, when you emerge from one of these encounters or these relationships, a person has been impacted, and they, they wonder what's going on, because, because it does have an impact. Because something has been transacted which is deeper than something that's just simply skin deep. And so, you know, are you allowed to make any demands on a guy whatsoever? That's what they were discussing in this article. Is this considered like, you know, can you, can you expect anything from him? And, you know, from talking as a guy right now, from a, I think, a terrible, ironic standpoint... I feel as though the guys have really tricked the women very badly here. Very profoundly. Because the, this, this type of interaction, which is something that's very male, this kind of, you know, men, multiple partners, things like that, which is historically a very male impulse, has gained acceptance to the point where feminists have felt like, wait a second, we're entitled to that also. Why should you restrict us and, you know, put all these societal exp- uh, expectations on us? Aren't we equally entitled to everything you are in terms of pleasure and in terms of freedom and, and the ability to roam around society however we want? And so the feminists pick this up as an ideal for equality and indoctrinated Several generations right now telling women, this is your right, this is your privilege, you're equal to men, you can have everything that the men have in terms of this type of lifestyle. And, and you know what the men are saying? Yay! <laughs> Hooray! You mean I don't even have to take you out for dinner? This is fantastic! I love this! I love this! 
I don't even have to call you, and it's your problem? It's not my problem? This is fantastic! The men are laughing. You don't even know how much the men are laughing. And, and you know, it's, it's tragic. To me, it's tragic. So, so women are walking around today, and you've got, you can read this article in the New York Times. You know, it's, uh, I guess, October 27th, something like this. You know, just, it's, I didn't add anything to it. It's, it's just all there. But the level of confusion, what, what happens now that I have this relationship? And I'm afraid to ask him, I'm afraid to ask him, is there, do we, are we in a relationship? Things have become so um, confused that asking someone, are you my boyfriend or do we have any commitment to each other or are we in a relationship, that's considered absolutely like, like, oh my God, you wouldn't want to ask that. That's a humiliating question. It's a humiliating. So you try to be cool and then you don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Um, so, so that's all to say that, um, that sometimes ideas, sometimes ideas about society, which can be coming from a very good place. Listen, equality, you see, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, because should women be paid the same amount of money as a man for a job? A thousand percent. Should a woman have every single type of economic and social opportunity in politics and society as a man has? Absolutely. Absolutely. But ultimately, a person has to ask themselves, and you can come up with your own opinion on this matter. Is there a different nature to a man and a woman? Are we identical in terms of our natures? And how we respond to certain stimuli and certain types of relationships. Do we have different inherent needs that come from being a woman or come from being a man? And then you have to answer that question for yourself. I, I, I think so. I think so. And I think that time and again we have evidence of that. But I don't think that that's an anti-feminist stance. If anything, that, that, that glorifies the status of a woman. That they have a unique set of values that, that, that need to be celebrated. And, and a man, for that matter. Also a unique set of values that should be valued and respected, ideally. Right? But that's a separate category. In other words, one can think that without saying, oh, okay, so you just want to put a woman in a kitchen and chain her and keep her pregnant and barefoot and everything like that. No! You don't have to have... One doesn't mean the other. You can have total societal equality, but it doesn't mean that our natures are exactly the same. Anyway, like I say, you can reach your own conclusions about that. So, so the point is, is that if it is true, if it is true, let's just say for a moment, that, 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 that sexuality, say, does affect women, maybe in a different way than men, then perhaps the utter breakdown of societal norms is not a great thing. Is not a great thing even if it's come from a person who's thinking and philosophizing about total equality. Well, maybe at a certain point, the philosophy hits the wall of biology and ceases to be accurate or relevant. Right? As, as, as my grandfather used to say, smart, smart, stupid. 
right? You, you, can be, you can draw very cogent, intelligent, logical steps and make several in a row and then make a completely wrong one. That's also possible. Unfortunately, at that point, it seems like the conclusion is so grounded in great thinking that people don't question the conclusion. And then you don't know what happens after that. All hell can break loose. So, so anyway. Anyway, you know, if I, just to maybe sum this up, you know, as a, I'm, I'm not a dating coach, but I would, I would suggest that uh, if you're a woman out there, be strong. <laughs> be strong. Be strong. You know? You know, you, you are entitled to respect. Don't give it away for free. <laughs> because men do. Because, because, believe me, you will have many willing customers <laughs> whose credit is terrible. <laughs> and, and, you know, they'll take and take and take and take. And, you know, you know there's a, a famous uh, old-time expression, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? And, you know, something... You know, if you want a, if you want a one-line description of a man, you got it right there. I, I say this to you as a man. I object. Okay. The animal also deserves more respect than simply being a sexual object. Yes. He needs to think. Okay. He needs to think of himself more than that. He needs. Agreed. Agreed. Men also have to respect themselves. I th- absolutely. I think, you know, just because I read this article yesterday and it was really focusing on the plight of women, I'm sort of keyed into their dilemma right now. But it's true across the board. It's true across the board. Absolutely. Um, so Abraham is coming and he's, he's restarting everything. And again, you know, anytime you can see... Uh, sort of like a window into the way God is guiding the world in terms of cause and effect. Because causality in this world is, is very difficult to, to understand. Like, why did this happen? Well, that's a very mysterious thing. You know, if I'm just talking about not dating anymore, but just in general. If you want to pinpoint something in your life and you say to yourself, why did that happen to me? That's, that's very hard to answer that question. You know, for the most part. So cause and effect is, 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 is hard to, to get to the bottom of. That's why I think it's why I'm, I'm placing some emphasis on this particular point, that the first two parshas of the Torah are really talking about humanity in general. For instance, Adam and Eve are not called Jewish. They're not called Jewish. All right? Nonetheless, we know that they had two mitzvahs in the Garden of Eden to work and to guard the garden. And these are considered a microcosm of the 613 mitzvahs. In other words, God looks into the Torah, creates the world with the letters, right? So creates the world out of the fabric of the Torah, if you will. So Adam and Eve, even though they're not Jewish, are nonetheless working within the paradigm of the Torah from the beginning of creation. Then we have the generation of the flood. Again, no mention of Jewish, non-Jewish. And then immorality sets in, right? 
We start again. God puts a big mikveh in the world, right? Like turns the world into water. It's a big mikveh. Then the whole Tower of Babel thing. Again, man tries to assert independence from God, if you will. That story is, is, is very interesting on a lot of levels, but let's just sum it up in that one sentence. Mankind decides, you know what, let's try to survive without God. We'll be independent. God says no, right? Again, no mention of Junanja. Just society as a whole, humanity as a whole. But again, operating within the paradigm of Torah. And then God says, okay, and here's, here's the point I'm trying to make in terms of looking to heavenly cause and effect. God says, we're going to start small now. We're going to start with an individual now. So that's like, wow, that's a big game changer. That's a very big game changer. And this one family is going to come and enlighten the world. So, so I mean, there's so much to this. But one of the things that, that's involved here is that all of a sudden you see how important your individual relationships are in terms of transforming the world. Dramatically important. See, I think in our celebrity crazed culture, where I really feel like there's a, a, an actual cult of celebrity going on, seizing the minds of people today, that people think that unless I've got this giant platform, this giant audience, I'm re- I really don't count, ultimately. Not only don't I really count, but my ability to impact the world is, is, almost, is, is negligible, essentially. And so what God is telling us with this shift to Abraham, to the individual, is no, you have no concept how much power you have. You have, no, you have no concept how you can change the world. You know, the, the level of respect for the most part that the world has for the life of a normal human being today compared to thousands of years ago, it can't even be compared with the value of a human being is today. Relative. I mean, we still have to make great progress in this field. But nonetheless, relative to what it was in ancient times, human beings were totally disposable. Totally disposable. And Judaism, Judaism came and taught the world this lesson. In, they were the biggest teachers of this lesson. The biggest teachers. You know, one of the things that, that I noticed, and... Um, and I saw this especially in, in the Iraq War uh, as it was waged under the, uh, in the second Bush administration, was how impactful the American troop death toll was as it was reported each day. And I remember actually when I was growing up, um, there was a radio show in New York, which was a, like a, a tradition in New York, and I think maybe even the son of the broadcaster is still doing it and when I was, when my mother was listening to it, when I was a little boy, he was the son of the previous one. So it was this real institution in New York City. It was called Rambling with Gambling. Okay, that was the name of this radio show in the morning. And I remember as a little boy being in like third grade, my mother would have it on and she'd serve me breakfast and I'd be sitting eating uh, Wittina, right? Getting ready for PS 87. And, um, and I'd hear the death count 
uh, of American soldiers in Vietnam. And that was part of my morning breakfast as a, as a child. And there was something like 60,000 Americans, if I'm not mistaken, who were killed in, in Vietnam. I remember uh, a few years ago, uh, we went into a fevered pitch as a nation when we reached the 2,000 uh, count of American soldiers dead in Iraq. Now again, I'm, God forbid I'm minimizing the importance of a life. What I'm trying to do is to show you just societally how, how things have, have, have transformed. That, that's my only point here, just to be clear. 60,000 dead in Vietnam, and people went nuts when we hit the 2,000 mark in, in Iraq. For, I'm, I'm talking about American soldiers right now. Now, to the point where it was becoming almost impossible to conduct this war. And again, I'm not advocating that we should have had more war. I'm not taking any political stance here right now. What, what I'm trying to show you is that with the increase of media attention and awareness and everything like this, that, that the world is becoming increasingly sensitized to the value of a life. Now, there's certain wars, of course, that are worth fighting. You have to fight a war. With Hitler is the greatest example. You say you don't want war. What about Hitler? Right? You've got to get rid of him, no matter how many millions of people it takes. Right? Because the alternative is for humanity itself to be enslaved. So, 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 so no price is, is too great to get rid of someone like that. There are times, and, and, and the Torah itself demands war in certain times. In fact, in Lech Lecha, the first introduction to, to Abraham, and I want to get back to the fact that it begins when he's 75. That's, that's the point that I wanted to make before. Let's, let's get back to that. But in, 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 this, uh, in this Parsha, there's a war of the five kings versus the four kings. It's the first world war that's, 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 that's recorded. And you see Abraham as a warrior going in to save the, li- the life of Lot. Right? So, in other words... This idea of, of, of um, the spiritual person from the Jewish ideal also being a warrior is, 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 is very, much, it's very much part of the Jewish view. That at a certain point, it's like, it's not about turning the other cheek at a certain point. At a certain point, you pick up arms and you fight. You have to. You just have to. David Amelech, who's the soul of Mashiach, Right? A warrior, one of the great warriors in history, actually. Also a poet, also a mystic, also a prophet, also, you know, great in so many ways. But also a warrior. Moshe, Moshe slays people. Okay, say, they say we did it with the name of Hashem. But nonetheless, you, you see Moshe as a warrior as well. So this idea of proactiveness... When, it, when it's mandated, when it's mandated, you see, other traditions take this to a, a, a ridiculous place. And this is not Torah, to walk into a pizza shop and to kill women and children in a pizza shop. This is ridiculousness. This is, this is ricious. This is wicked. This is evil. This is not what we're talking about right now. But nonetheless, the idea that there's some sort of contradiction between someone being spiritual and someone not being involved in the world, this is not the Jewish paradigm. Spirituality demands you being involved, 
demands you making peace with another person, demands you discussing difficult things with, with people, when sometimes it's very hard and awkward perhaps. And of course you have to do it the right way. can't do it the wrong way. Right? And, and it doesn't mean it's not difficult. And you have to know when to do it and when not to do it. You know, and say, okay, now I'm going to be a warrior. There's some difficult conversations that I have. So I'm going to go and have it. No, that's not what I'm saying. You have to talk to people beforehand and figure out how to do it, when to do it, if to do it. But don't say in your mind that the Jewish idea of the, of the tzaddik, of the holy person, is someone who doesn't take action. You must take action. Okay, now let's go back to this idea that we've got Abraham Avinu is being introduced at age 75. And we know some amazing things about the life of Abraham. How he stood his ground. How this incredible miracle was performed for, that, he did, that he didn't burn in a furnace. I'll tell you something. And I heard this with my own ears and saw it with my own eyes. There's someone who used to daven with us. Now he's very weak. His name is Isaac. Shem should bless him. And he davened in our very small little minion over here. Just it's basically ten people. It's, you know. And uh, for many years he was there. And he told me, he was from Europe. He told me that with his brother, they led them into the gas chamber. He walked into the gas chamber and the gas didn't come out. They guess, forgot to reload the gas. And he told, me as, I, I, he told me this story. He said, I stood inside the gas chamber ready to die and the gas didn't come out. And then they, you know, took us out. Now, I mean, how many people did that happen to? Not a lot, I promise you. And if it did happen, they got him the next time. How many people can tell that story? I heard it with my own ears. So, so is it that much more impossible to believe that Abraham got thrown into this furnace and it just didn't work? Abraham, whose whole, whose whole mission was to show that God controls every aspect of the world? Remember, one of the radical breakthroughs that Torah is introducing to the world is that God didn't just create the world and go away. A lot of people, even Jews, even religious Jews, think, okay, there's a God, I believe there's a God, I'm doing the Torah for whatever reason, but is God involved in the world? Is He involved in my life? And then they say something which I, I want to just smack them when I hear this. God is very busy. <laughs> God's busy, I don't want to bother Him. Please don't say that. Please don't think that. You have no concept of his infinity if you think that he's busy. If you think he's too busy to feed ants in Indonesia in a forest that no human being has stepped foot on since the, since the world was created, he has time for you where he's put a piece of himself into your own soul. Believe me. He knows what's going on in your life. Believe me. So the question is, if we know all these amazing things about Abraham, why is the story of Abraham, except for a fleeting mention in a genealogical driven paragraph, 
where he's just mentioned Abram, right, and Sarai, right? Why does the story of Abraham begin when he's 75 years old, being told to go to Israel, when at this point he's an established personage, world-famous personage? Kings would take advice from him. Not only that, but he had his own currency. You know, at this time, there were no real national currencies. People made their own currency. To show you how, how beloved he was, and how trusted he was by the world, his currency, which he minted, the silver that he minted, was considered the gold standard. You could trust that whatever, you know, it wasn't a gram. They didn't have that measurement, but let's just use it anyway. When he said that this was a gram of silver, everyone held that was a gram of silver. All the other currencies, you say it's a gram, what are they? You know, we're lucky if it's half a gram, right? This is a gram. So Abraham inspired the world in terms of his trustworthiness in a massive way. He consulted with kings. He was really a big, big person. So we're picking up his life, and what does God tell him? God says to him, by the way, just so you know, just a, a side point, what was printed on his currency? Right? Because you've got to print something, you've got to put a little picture on it, right? An old couple was on one side, him and Sarah, and a young couple was on the other side, him and Sarah. So you might think, oh, this is... Um, this is like a history of my relationship with my wife. First we were young. Here's a picture of us young. And here's a picture of us old. But Rabbi Moshe Shapiro says, one of, Shlita, one of the greatest rabbis in the world today, says, no, that's not the point. It's, that it goes, it's not that it goes from old to young. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not that it goes from young to old. It's that the, the coin goes from old to young. <laughs> that's, that's the amazing thing. That's what's being brought out. In other words, again, we've been discussing this idea of constant beginnings. Constant beginnings that the world's made out of. And so that was reflected on the currency, that you can go from old to young. Like just in a flip, just in a moment. Old to young. So, so now we can get to the answer. So this is from the Maharal. And I heard this from Rabbi Wolfson. So the Maharal says the following. The reason why... The story of Abraham Avinu begins at 75 is because you shouldn't think that the reason why God chose him had to do with any of his merits up until that point. The reason why God chose Abraham was because of unconditional love. And it was not merit-based. And that it comes from what they call the Ratzon Elyon, the highest aspect of divine will. God selected Abraham, and that's what it is. That's just what it is. That's just what it is. And to me, there's something so beautiful about that, because, because what can be better than unconditional love? What can be better than that? And God is telling us that the foundation of his relationship with the Jewish people is based on unconditional love. Because otherwise, what you could say is, maybe if I make a mistake, see, other religions want to say that the Jewish people made big mistakes and that God abandoned them. But if you understand that the entire foundation of our relationship with God is unconditional love, that it's not merit-based, then, then, then mistakes can't even enter into the formulation of God abandoning us. 
Because the whole foundation is based on having no merits whatsoever. It's not conditional on anything. So therefore, during the relationship itself, ideally you're doing the right thing. But if you do the wrong thing, since the relationship didn't begin by doing the right thing, (laughs) the wrong thing doesn't abrogate the relationship. Because it's an eternal bond. So that's a very, very important point. Now, now listen to this. You know, I always like to talk about microcosms. And one of them, which is very striking, but I'm going to tell you an even more striking one in a moment. One of them that's very interesting, and we have, by the way, we have a, um, a klal, a foundation that I think the Ramban speaks out explicitly, which is called Maisim Avo Simen Labonim which is the deeds of the forefathers and the foremothers are assigned to their children. Meaning to say that you can see all of the future of Jewish history based on the lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Okay? So, and even your own individual life. Yeah, your own individual life. Absolutely. Not just Jewish history, but your own individual life. You can see mirrored in the life of the patriarchs. And matriarchs. So, so one of the great examples um, is that there's a famine in Israel. And by the way, this I think is, you know, I spent about two years teaching this one point right now. I'm going to say it in a minute. But, it, but I, I spent a good two years on this one point. Because I think it's so essential to getting through life, understanding this, okay? I think I heard it from Rabbi Orlovsky to begin with. But um, anyway, it goes like this. You think Abraham Avinu, 75 years old, you know, not, not a young man at this point, uproots his entire community, leaves, leaves, takes, goes to, he doesn't even know where he's going. God says, I'm going to go to the place that I'm going to show you. Right? That takes even more faith in God. He uproots everything. He, he goes, he journeys to a place he doesn't even know where he's going. You know, by the way, in my own life, I, I ask myself, where am I, where am I heading? And I don't, I, I don't know if I ever sang you this song. I wrote a song. Here's the chorus. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, now you can. <laughs> so. So, he, God says to Avram, just go. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Where? I'll tell you. Where? I'll tell you. So, so Avram just goes, right? He gets there. So, you would think at that point, this is one of the ten tasks, he overcomes this. All right, so it's going to be good for him in Israel. Right? He overcame the task. What happens? Oh, how about... Hey, I got an idea, says God. Why don't we have your wife kidnapped? <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we have a famine in the land? That's a fantastic idea. You mean I went here? This, this is the place you want me to go? Yes, this is it. You sure this is it? Because you said you're not going to tell me. No, 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 now I'm telling you this is it. This is it, this is it. Where's the food? There's no food. There's no food. <laughs> You sure this is it? This is absolutely it. Walk the land. This is for your children forever. Where's the food? No food. No food? 
So, so, so what we learn from this, what we learn from this, and this is the point that I, I can't, we can't understand this point deeply enough. Okay, if you go over this point ten times a day, it's not enough. People think, and this is a lot of what it means growing up in America and, and the whole Western, you know, day spa ethos, right? Manicure, pedicure, everything, right? Is, is that if I overcome a test, now it's good. Ah, now it's good, right? But you see that that's not actually what's going on. Or, let me put it in another way, and perhaps a more compelling way. If there's something going wrong in my life, it's because I messed up. Because if, because if I hadn't messed up, I would not be encountering any difficulty. Almost everyone believes this. And by the way, just in fairness to Torah... There is such a thing that if someone is messing up in their life, they will encounter difficulty and they'll have to correct these things to the point where if a person is encountering difficulty and they're not introspective about it and they don't do like a, an audit on their deeds and their life, the Rambam accords that it says, he uses the word axarius, which means cruelty. That a person is actually being cruel to themselves if they're not doing an account to figure out why the problem is coming. However, however, there's this larger point which I'm making right now. Abraham, of all people, didn't do anything wrong. No one is saying that when he, hit, when he encountered the famine, initially, that he did anything wrong. No one is saying that. Check the sources. No one is saying that. And yet, you see, he encounters a test. He encounters a major setback, major difficulty. Which just goes to show you what? That the currency of this life is basically encountering challenges and overcoming them. That is the currency of this world. That is the currency of life. That doesn't mean that this world is a bad place. That doesn't mean that life is miserable. But one has to expect challenges on a regular basis... And can't think that they're only coming because I'm a lowlife. I'm a lowlife who hasn't gotten my act together. That's why, that's why I'm not getting a pedicure right now. Right? It's, and you see it from the life of Abraham. We will encounter challenges as long as we live, no matter what. And that's part of the fixing of this world. That's why we're here. By, just in terms of the, the physics of it, if you will, by, over, by, by, by leveraging our souls, by leveraging the light of our souls and our free will, and propelling it, dedicating it, leveraging it in the right direction, in overcoming challenges, you are bringing the redemption closer. That is, that is what is going on. And if you say, and if you say, there are too many troubles... <laughs> And we've suffered too long. And it doesn't make any sense. And is it actually going to any place? If you question this and you wonder, it, it, life is just too difficult to, ex, to, to explain it away in this way. Then what I would actually ask you to do is to look through 
a telescope or a microscope? Because I was thinking about this question. And it seems to me that the vastness of the world, the vastness of the universe, which keeps on getting bigger every time we look at it, and more detailed every time we look in a microscope, we're, we're just swimming in vastness. Every time I was telling you about the September 5th New York Times article about DNA, that they want, this part of DNA, once they finished the Human Genome Project, they finished the whole thing, and they said, oh, this part is junk. Now they're looking at it and they're saying, this, this is the whole thing, is this thing that we thought was junk. They, they can't, they, they said it's an, a mind-exploding amount of data. So if you look in a microscope, you see that it goes on and on and on and on and on. If you look in a telescope, you see it goes on and on and on and on and on. The vastness is incomprehensible. Couldn't have God made a smaller world? For goodness sakes. Couldn't he have made, you know, anatomy simpler? For goodness sakes. What I'm saying is, is that once you're in touch with how vast the scale is of existence, how utterly vast the scale is, then all of a sudden, I think for me, speaking personally, it makes sense that there could be this amount of difficulty. That, 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 that the amount of difficulty that we in, in, encounter in our lives actually could actually be in somewhat proportion to the reality of the world. Not only in portion, in proportion, but how about exactly in proportion? <laughs> so, so yeah, that that that's what that says to me. That 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 there is that to acknowledge and to validate human suffering. You have to acknowledge it. You have to validate it. You have to work for its eradication. But at the same time, to understand that if it's against the backdrop of this, these infinite expanses, that God knows what he's doing. That somehow this is also in proportion. And with that in mind, I just want to visit a teaching from Pirkei Avos, which I think says this in a very, you know, kind of, utterly simple, elegant way, which is they say that, that, that one moment in the next world, meaning once your soul is kind of plucked out of your body, right? Like, you can imagine, like, a sensitive part of your body, your, the, the, the tip of your tongue or your, your fingertips, how sensitive those things are. Imagine your, your, your soul, bless you, outside of your body, how utterly sensitive that is. Now imagine your soul plugged into the spiritual realms of godliness, basking in the rays of the Shekhinah, of the heavenly light. I mean, it's another category of pleasure. It's another category of pleasure. And so it says in Perkei Avos, that one moment in the next world is more pleasurable than all of the pleasures of your entire lifetime combined. Because it's operating on another quantum level. And so again, to put everything, and then it says something amazing, and one moment of tshuva in this world is worth the entire next world. <laughs> Meaning, can you imagine what we're transacting when we do one mitzvah in this world? It's, it's, it's incredible. Because this is a closed field right now. You have to have a human body 
you have to have the ability, the, the smarts to understand that it's, that it's not just good to do good, but it's smart to do good. Right? So it's, it's like, and angels can't do it. Angels don't have bodies. All these heavenly hosts, trillions and trillions and trillions of them, can't do what you can do on a bad day. <laughs> on a bad day when you can hardly get out of bed, you're so depressed. The heavenly host can't do what you can do on a bad day in terms of the amount of good. So, so again, when we wrap our minds around and we try to comprehend the scale of everything, then we understand that, that, that even though we encounter difficulties, that, that they're in proportion to the, to the epic nature of this project that we're in the, that we're in the middle of. It's utterly epic. It's utterly epic. You know, I often think Wagner, Wagner um, would have these uh, operas that would, they would go for hours, I, I think even up to five hours, something like this. And one of the things that he would do, just in terms of uh, uh, musicality, is he wouldn't resolve the central theme. Okay, meaning to say, you know, there's like a, like a harmony, you know, and it's like, it's very nice when you hit that note. And then all the previous notes, all of a sudden, ah, you feel like, ah, right? He wouldn't resolve the central harmony for five hours. And then at the climax of his opera, he'd resolve this central theme and people would be weeping. They'd be weeping in their seats. Because the tension that's built up, right? All of a sudden you're like, ah, 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 right? And then the storyline comes together, so it's operating on a number of different Sensory levels, right? Can you imagine what's going to happen when world history gets resolved? You know, it's interesting. It's just hitting my head right now. But it's interesting that the arrival of Mashiach, that it's going to be done with a chauffeur blast. That's a musical note. A musical note. You know, interesting, right? So, and then we'll see it. We'll see the scale. And by the way, you know what it says in the Gomorrah? Something frightening. Inspiring and frightening at the same time. It says that when Mashiach comes, when the Yetzirah is shechted, right? When the evil inclination is eradicated, which is going to happen at the end of days because it's not going to be necessary anymore. It's just a tool to, to have us to leverage something against, right? It's just, it's just to bring out our inner light. That's, that's all the Yetzirah is there for. And then once Mashiach comes, it's not needed anymore, so it's going to go away. God's going to get rid of it. The language is shechted, which means slice its throat, so to speak. It's not a person, but just that's the imagery that they use. So then they say that here's what's going to happen. The righteous are going to see the Yetzirah. And again, this is at the end of days, so this is like you know, the, the epic scale of it as this giant mountain. And they're going to start weeping. And they're going to say, how did we ever climb that? Right? And they're going to weep. They're going to go, I can't, how did we ever climb that? And if you think about it, all of the generations throughout history, and all the work that they've done, and people that you don't know about, and and, and deeds that you're never even going to hear about in your whole life, things that you'd never stop talking about, which which not only don't you know about, but you're never going to hear about it, have been done time and again, time and again, hundreds or thousands or maybe even millions of times, 
deeds that would rack your brains. You're never even going to find out about it. And they've been done. The epic nature of getting through history. We're going to look up at this mountain and we're going to weep. How did we do it? And you know what it says the wicked are going to see? The Yetzirah has one hair on the ground. And they're going to weep. They're going to say, how is it that I wasn't even able to step over that? Can you imagine? It's like, whoa. (laughs) One little hair on the ground. They're going to say, how is it possible I wasn't able to step over that during my lifetime? So, so if we encounter challenges, like Abraham hits the famine, we shouldn't necessarily think, you have to look into your actions, are there things that I have to fix? Try and fix them. But if you don't see anything that, you're, that you need to fix, or if you're in the process of fixing it, right, then God counts it on some level as though you fixed it, if you're really addressing it. Then understand challenges just also come. That's just part of life. And it doesn't mean that you've necessarily messed up or that God is angry at you, God forbid. Okay. So now, now, I'm just telling you the microcosm. So now they go down, they see this famine, and Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt to get some food. And then there's a whole incident. Sarah gets kidnapped, and then the, the Abimelech gives them a lot of, or Paro, whatever it is, gives them a lot of cattle and food and cash and tells them to get out of there. And then they go back to Israel. And they say that that's the exact model of what happens later on in Jewish history. The Jewish people need food. Remember, there's a famine at the time of Yosef. And the brothers, they need food. They go down to Egypt to get food. And then they leave Egypt from the Egyptian enslavement with the wealth of Egypt. It's, it's an exact parallel. Do you, do you see? So this is Maisim Avos Simin Labanim. But here's the point I want to make. There's a microcosm within this microcosm. Because what happens when we leave Egypt at the, with, 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 with Moshe and Aaron at the time of Pharaoh? We then set about for a journey to get where? To Israel. That's the goal. We have to get to Israel. Right? Now listen to this. So interesting to me anyway. Rabbi Wolfson says, do you know what? With Lech Lecha, Avraham gets to Israel. In other words, there's a microcosm within the microcosm. <laughs> In other words, Israel is considered the end game. Israel is considered redemption. The fact that Avraham actually made it to Israel at all is a sign that all of us together from the four corners of the world are going to be able to get to Israel ultimately in the time of Mashiach. Because Abraham got to Israel. That's the microcosm within the microcosm within the microcosm. The fact that he made it to Israel at all was massive. That was like game over at that point. Then it's just you got to do it. You know, I I heard something uh, on NPR this week that I, I, I was struck by. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's, of course, famous for writing the Sherlock Holmes novels. So, so when he was 21, he was a doctor, or just finishing medical school, whatever it was, and uh, someone was going to be the doctor on a ship to something like Antarctica or the South Pole, like one of these, you know, one of those places. It was, I think it was one or the other. And he said, I can't be the doctor on the ship. Will you come and be the doctor on the ship? 
So uh, he said, yeah, which is, you know, kind of cool. Like back then, you know, like to go to one of those places. And, um, and he talks about hunting for seal meat and, and he kept a diary. They've just published this diary. Okay. So they were reading excerpts from this diary. And, and my favorite entry went like this. I, I hope I'm quoting it exactly. He said, there was nothing to do today and we did it. <laughs> so, so Avram got to Israel. That's what he needed to do and he did it. He did it and that's a sign for us of our all time that there's a happy ending to the story. That we, that we successfully overcome our challenges. And that we get there. And um, I'll just uh, maybe just add one more idea, if, if, uh, if you will, and just uh, not too long, but just to finish on this note. So, so, you know, I mentioned to you that, that the reason why, according to the Maharal, the uh, life of Abraham is, is beginning to be described when he's 75 years old and doesn't mention anything about these amazing things that happened to him, which again we say actually did happen, and is not in the realm of metaphor or medrash, but these were actual events that happened. You know, things that would be very much worthy to be included in the Torah were not included. The reason is because God's love for Abraham was unconditional and not based on any merit that he did. It came from the Ratzon Elyon, from the the highest level of divine will. Okay. So now, now listen to this. It's interesting that they had so much trouble having children. How much trouble? Well, she's 90, Sarah is 90, and Abraham is, 90, is 99, and is, is 100 when, 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 when Yitzchak is born. That's really old. That's old to have a child. It's miraculously old to have a child. And uh, says, Hashem loves the prayers of tzaddikim, which is, uh, that's a chazal teaching from the sages that I'm still trying to figure out, you know. But anyway, that's one of the explanations given of why it took so long for them to have children. Anyway, so, so it says that Sarah wasn't just, uh, wasn't just having fertility issues. She had no womb. Okay, that's, that's, that would be another category of fertility issues, okay? So this is, again, to underscore the level of miracle that was transacted. But anyway, the point being that not only were the Jewish people selected on this idea of the Ratzon Elyon on an unconditional level, but you see the first member, the first organic, if you will, the first member, born member of the Jewish people came into the world completely bederich nes, completely on the level of miracles, which again underscores what the nature of Klal Yisrael is, what the nature of this entity known as the Jewish people is. It's this kind of, it's this miraculous entity that exists in the world. And, you know, I heard someone say that when anti-Semites say to the Jewish people, you don't belong here, that on some level they're really right. That because we have this kind of semi-supernatural nature to us, that we really 
don't belong here. We really are, in a way, strangers to this world of complete nature-driven laws. Because if you look at our history, it keeps on defying all probability. So you see that the first person born to the Jewish people, Isaac, was born by miraculous means, which underscores again the foundation of what this entity of Klal Yisrael is, the, the congregation of Israel. Okay. So here's the point that I wanted to bring out. When God says to, and this is so beautiful, this is so beautiful because it shows you how these were real people at the same time. And I think that one of the problems that a lot of people have, and I think that um, we'll, we'll get into it in a moment, is that we tend to mythologize these people. And we can't afford to mythologize them because they were real people. They were extraordinary people, but they were real people. And if you lose sight of the reality of their struggles, then you miss almost the whole point of all of this. And, and not only that, but I think that there's something almost very subtle and toxic going on as well. Because if you allow yourself to mythologize them, then what happens is you say, I am not in that category, and I am not responsible to demand higher things of myself because this is them, but I'm me. So again, a, a person might think intellectually that they're actually giving them great honor by uh, uh, affording them this sort of like superhero type status. But on a subtler level, sometimes what's happening is a person is actually excusing themselves from the effort required to reach that level as well. And a person is supposed to ask themselves, when are my deeds going to reach the level of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? It says that a person, every person is supposed to ask themselves this question. So here you see in this, in this next account the humanity of Sarah in particular. Okay? So God says to Sarah, you're going to have a, you're going to have a baby. Or, or maybe he tells Avram and Avram tells Sarah. And, 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 and Sarah laughs. Right? So laughing in that context is, 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 is tantamount to disbelief. Because, come on. Really? Come on. You know, God, I love you anyway. I, the truth is, I wanted a kid. I love you anyway. But don't tell me I'm having a kid, because that's crazy, because look at my age. Right? So she laughs. And then God says later on, you, you laughed. And she says, no, I didn't laugh. And then God says, oh, no, you did laugh. <laughs> so now what's going on with that? Is Sarah lying to God? Like, you know, God is, God is there. God is watching everything. God knows everything. How can you tell God you, did, you didn't laugh if you laughed? Like, where, who, does she think she's going to trick God? And then God calls her on it and says, you did laugh. Now, I'm going to give you an analysis of this from Reb Labela Eger. And we'll end on this point. And to me, this is one of the best teachings in the world, okay? So, so what happened? You see, when Sarah said, I didn't, Sarah did laugh. Sarah did laugh. That's the truth. But when Sarah said, I didn't laugh, what did she mean to say? What she meant to say was, God, I don't think I'm worthy. I don't believe in myself. 
I don't believe in myself. It's not a question of believing in you. Of course I believe in you, God. But I don't believe in myself. That's why I, I laughed, because I, I can't merit such a thing. Or if I did merit such a thing, I, I'm sure I'm going to mess it up. And God says, no, you did laugh. Now listen to this. Here's the point. God said to her, I believe in you, Sarah. So if you don't believe in you, then on some level you don't believe in me. Do you hear that? I believe in you, Sarah. So if on some level you don't believe in you, that means you don't believe in me. And let me tell you why that's so important. Because a lot of times we compartmentalize our, 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 our consciousness, our personalities, and we say, God, I believe in you. I happen to have very low self-esteem, but that's my problem. <laughs> that's my problem. And, and, and we go a step further. Again, we don't articulate these things, but on an emotional level, not only do we say that's my problem, we say that's my business. If I want to think bad about myself, that's my business. It's not your business, God. And God says, oh, no, 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 <laughs> you, no. you don't get away with that. You don't get away with that. Because I believe in you. I believe in you. So if you want to believe in me, you also have to believe in you. That's part of believing in me, says God. That's part of believing in God is believing in yourself. And so Shem should bless us, you know. You know, we've already won. Now all we have to do is win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have a great week.